0: section eleven of beacon lights of history volume twelve american leaders by john lord this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recorded by k hand daniel webster part three in order to arrive at this coveted office although its duties probably would have been irksome it is possible that he sought to conciliate the south and win the favor of southern leaders But I do not believe he ever sought to win their favour by any abandonment of his former principles or by any treachery to the cause he had espoused. Yet it is this of which he has been accused by his enemies—many of those enemies his former friends. The real cause of this estrangement, and of all the accusations against him, was this. He did not sympathise with the abolition party. He was not prepared to embark in a crusade against slavery. The basal institution of the south he did not like slavery but he knew it to be an institution which the constitution of which he was the great defender had accepted accepted as a compromise in those dark days which tried men's souls many of the famous statesmen who deliberated in that venerated hall in philadelphia also disliked and detested slavery but they could not have had a constitution they could not have had a united country unless that institution was acknowledged and guaranteed. So they accepted it as the lesser evil. They made a compromise, and the Constitution was signed. Now everybody knows that the abolitionists of the North, about the year 1833, attacked slavery, although it was guaranteed by the Constitution. Attacked it not as an evil merely, but as a sin. Attacked it by virtue of a higher law than constitutional provision. And as an evil as a stain on our country as an insult to the virtue and intelligence of the age as a crime against humanity these people of the north declared that slavery ought to be swept away mr webster as well as mr fillmore mr lincoln mr everett and many other acknowledged patriots was for letting slavery alone as an evil too great to be removed without war which moreover could not be removed without an infringement on what the south considered as its rights he was for conciliation in order to preserve the constitution as well as the union the abolitionists were violent in their denunciations and although it took many years to permeate the north with their leaven they were in earnest and under persecutions and mobs and ostracism and contempt they persevered until they created a terrible public opinion the south had early taken the alarm and in order to protect their peculiar and favorite institution had at various times attempted to extend it into newly acquired territories where it did not exist, claiming the protection of the Constitution. Mr. Webster was one of their foremost opponents in this, contesting their right to do it under the Constitution. But in 1848 the anti-slavery opinion at the North crystallized in a political organization—the Free Soil Party. And on the other hand, the South proposed to abrogate the Missouri Compromise of 1820 as an offset to the admission of california as a free state and at the same time asked in further concession the passage of the fugitive slave bill and in anticipation of failing to get these threatened secession which of course meant war it was at this crisis that mr webster delivered his celebrated seventh of march speech in many respects his greatest in which he advocated conciliation and adherence to the constitution but which was represented to support Southern interests which all his life he had opposed, and more to advocate these interests in order to secure Southern votes for the presidency. Some of the rich and influential men of Boston who disliked Webster for other reasons-for he used to snub them even after they had lent him money-made the most they could of that speech, to alienate the people. The abolitionists, at last hostile to Mr. Webster, Who stood in their way and would not adopt their dictation or advice also bitterly denounced this speech until it finally came to be regarded by the common people few of whom ever read it as a very unpatriotic production entirely at variance with the views that webster formerly advanced and they forsook him now what is the real gist and spirit of that speech the passions which agitated the country when it was delivered have passed away and not only can we now calmly criticize it but people will listen to the criticism with all the attention it deserves it is my opinion shared by peter harvey and other friends of mr webster that in no speech he ever made our patriotic and union statements more fully avowed said he with fiery emphasis i hear with distress and anguish the word secession secession peaceable secession sir." Your eyes and mine are never destined to see that miracle. The dismemberment of this great country without convulsion? The breaking up the fountains of the great deep without ruffling the surface? There can be no such thing as peaceable secession. It is an utter impossibility. Is this great constitution, under which we live, to be melted and thawed away by secession, as the snows on the mountains are melted away under the influence of the vernal sun? No, sir. I SEE AS PLAINLY AS THE SUN IN THE HEAVENS WHAT THAT DISRUPTION MUST PRODUCE. I SEE IT MUST PRODUCE WAR. PEACEABLE SECESSION. PEACEABLE SECESSION. WHAT WOULD BE THE RESULT? WHERE IS THE LINE TO BE DRAWN? WHAT STATES ARE TO secede? WHAT IS TO REMAIN AMERICAN? WHAT AM I TO BE? AM I TO BE AN AMERICAN NO LONGER? A SECTIONAL MAN? A LOCAL MAN? A SEPARATIST WITH NO COUNTRY IN COMMON? HEAVEN FORBID where is the flag of the union to remain where is the eagle still to tower what is to become of the army what is to become of the navy what is to become of the public lands how is each of the thirty states to defend itself will you cut the mississippi in two leaving free states on its branches and slave states at its mouth can any one suppose that this population on its banks can be severed by a line that divides them from the territory of a foreign and alien government down somewhere, the Lord knows where, upon the lower branches of the Mississippi, Sir, I dislike to pursue this subject. I have utter disgust for it. I would rather hear of national blasts and mildews and pestilence and famine than to hear gentlemen talk about secession, to break up this great government to dismember this glorious country, to astonish Europe with an act of folly such as Europe for two centuries has never beheld in any government, no sir. Such talk is enough to make the bones of Andrew Jackson turn round in his coffin. Now, what are we to think of these sentiments, drawn from the 7th of March speech, so disgracefully misrepresented by the politicians and the fanatics? Do they sound like bidding for Southern votes? Can any Union sentiments be stronger? Can anything be more decided or more patriotic? He warns, he entreats, he predicts like a prophet he proves that secession is incompatible with national existence he sees nothing in it but war and of all things he dreaded and hated it was war he knew what war meant he knew that a civil war would be the direst calamity he would ward it off he would be conciliating he would take away the excuse of war by adhering to the constitution the written constitution which our fathers framed and which has been the admiration of the world under which we have advanced to prosperity and glory as no nation ever before advanced but a large class regarded the constitution as unsound in some respects a wicked constitution since it recognized slavery as an institution by the higher law they would sweep slavery away perhaps by moral means but by endless agitations until it was destroyed Mr. Webster, I confess, did not like those agitations, since he knew they would end in war. He had a great insight, such as few people had at that time. But his prophetic insight was just what a large class of people did not like, especially in his own state. He uttered disagreeable truths, as all prophets do, and they took up stones to stone him to stone him for the bravest act of his whole life, in which a transcendent wisdom appeared, and which will be duly honoured when the truth shall be seen. The fact was, at that time Mr. Webster seemed to be a croaker, a Jeremiah, as Burke at one time seemed to his generation, when he denounced the recklessness of the French Revolution. Very few people at the North dreamed of war. It was never supposed that the Southern leaders would actually become rebels. And they, on the other hand, never dreamed that the North would rise up solidly and put them down. And if war were to happen, it was supposed that it would be brief. Even so great and sagacious a statesman as Seward thought this. The South thought that it could easily whip the Yankees, and the North thought that it could suppress a Southern rebellion in six weeks. But both sides miscalculated. And so, in spite of warnings, the nation drifted into war. But as it turned out in the end, it seems a providential event— THE WAY GOD TOOK TO BREAK UP SLAVERY, THE ROOT AND SOURCE OF ALL OUR SECTIONAL ANIMOSITIES. A TERRIBLE BUT APPARENTLY NECESSARY catastrophe, SINCE MORE THAN A MILLION OF BRAVE MEN PERISHED, AND MORE THAN FIVE THOUSAND MILLIONS OF DOLLARS WERE SPENT. HAD THE NORTH BEEN WISE, IT WOULD HAVE COMPENSATED THE SOUTH FOR ITS SLAVES. HAD THE SOUTH BEEN WISE, IT WOULD HAVE ACCEPTED THE COMPENSATION AND SET THEM FREE. BUT IT WAS NOT TO BE. THAT ISSUE COULD ONLY BE SETTLED BY THE MOST TERRIBLE CONTEST OF MODERN TIMES. I will not dwell on that war which Webster predicted and dreaded. I only wish to show that it was not for want of patriotism that he became unpopular, but because he did not fall in with the prevailing passions of the day, or with the public sentiments of the North in reference to slavery, not as to its evils and wickedness, but as to the way in which it was to be opposed. The great reforms of England, since the accession of William Third have been effected by using constitutional means—not violence not revolution not war but by an appeal to reason and intelligence and justice no reforms in any nation have been greater and more glorious than those of the nineteenth century all affected by constitutional methods mr webster vainly attempted constitutional means he was a lawyer he reverenced the constitution with all its compromises he would observe the law of contracts yet no man in the nation was more impatient than he at the threats of secession he foretold that secession would lead to war and if mr webster had lived to see the war of which he had such anxious prescience i firmly believe that he would have marched under the banner of the north with patriotism equal to any man he would have been where mr everett was one of his own sons was slain in that war he was not a northern man with southern principles his whole life attested his northern principles there never was a time when he was not hated and mistrusted by the southern leaders it is not a proof that he was southern in his sympathies because he was not an abolitionist and by an abolitionist i mean what was meant thirty years ago one who was unscrupulously bent on removing slavery by any means good or bad since slavery in his eyes was a malum per se not a misfortune an evil a sin but a crime to be washed out by the besom of destruction mr webster did not sympathize with these extreme views He was not a reformer, but that does not show that he was unpatriotic or a southern man in his heart. The higher law to him was the fulfillment of a contract, the maintenance of promises made in good faith, whether those promises were wise or foolish, the observance of laws so long as they were laws. There was, undeniably, a great evil and shame to be removed, but he was not responsible for it, and he left that evil in the hands of him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay as he did repay in the four years devastations miseries and calamities and these so awful so unexpected so ill prepared for that a thoughtful and kind-hearted person in view of them will weep rather than rejoice for it is not pleasant to witness chastisements and punishments even if necessary and just unless the people who suffer are fiends and incarnate devils as very few men are human nature is about the same everywhere and individuals and nations peculiarly sinful are generally made so by their surroundings and circumstances the reckless people of frontier mining districts are not naturally worse than adventurers in new york or philadelphia nor is any vulgar and ignorant man in any part of the country suddenly made rich probably any coarser in his pleasures or more sensual in his appearance or more profane in his language than was vitellius or heliogabalus or ortho on an imperial throne but even suppose mr webster in the decline of his life intoxicated by his magnificent position or led astray by ambition made serious political errors what then all great men have made errors both in judgment and morals caesar when he crossed the rubicon Theodosius, when he slaughtered the citizens of Thessalonica, Luther, when he quarrelled with Zwingli, Henry IV, when he stooped at Canossa, Elizabeth, when she executed Mary Stuart, Cromwell, when he bequeathed absolute power to his son, Bacon, when he took bribes, Napoleon, when he divorced Josephine, Hamilton, when he fought Burr. The sun itself passes through eclipses, as it gives light to the bodies which revolve around it. Even David and Peter stumbled. Because Webster professed to know as much of the interests of the country as the shoemakers of Lynn, and refused to be instructed in his political duties by Garrison and Wendell Phillips, does he deserve eternal reprobation? Because he opposed the public sentiments of his constituents on one point, when perhaps they were right, is he to be hurled from his lofty pedestal? Are all his services to be forgotten because he did not lift up his trumpet voice in favor of immediate emancipation? And even suppose he sought to conciliate the South when the South was preparing for rebellion. Is peacemaking such a dreadful thing? Go still farther. Suppose he wished to conciliate the South in order to get Southern support for the presidency, which I grant he wanted and possibly sought. Is he to be unforgiven, and his name to be blasted, and he held up to the rising generation as a fallen man? Does a man fall hopelessly because he stumbles? is a man to be dethroned because he is not perfect when was webster's vote ever bought and sold who ever sat with more dignity in the councils of the nation would he have voted for back pay would he have bought a seat in the senate even if he had been as rich as a bonanza king consider how few errors webster really committed in a public career of nearly forty years Consider the beneficence and wisdom of the measures which he generally advocated, and which would have been lost but for his eloquence of power. Consider the greatness and luster of his Congressional career on the whole. Who has proved a greater benefactor to this nation on the floor of Congress than he? I do not wish to eulogize, still less to whitewash, so great a man, but only to render simple justice to his memory and deeds." THE TIME HAS COME TO LIFT THE VEIL WHICH FOR THIRTY YEARS HAS concealed HIS NOBLE POLITICAL SERVICES. THE TIME HAS COME TO CRY SHAME ON THOSE BOYS WHO MOCKED A PROPHET, AND SAID, GO UP, THOU BALD HEAD, ALTHOUGH NO BEARS WERE FOUND TO DEVOUR THEM. THE TIME HAS COME FOR THIS NATION TO bury THE OLD SLANDERS OF AN EXCITING POLITICAL WARFARE, AND RENDER THANKS FOR THE SERVICES PERFORMED BY THE GREATEST INTELLECTUAL GIANT OF THE PAST GENERATION services rendered not on the floor of the senate alone not in the national legislature for thirty years but in one of the great offices of state when he made a treaty with england which saved us from an entangling war the ashburton treaty is the brightest gem in the coronet with which he should be crowned it was the proudest day in webster's life when rufus choate announced to him one evening that the senate had confirmed the treaty it was not when he closed his magnificent argument in behalf of dartmouth college not when he addressed the intelligence of new england at bunker hill not when he demolished governor hayne not when he sat on the wool sack with lord brougham not when he was entertained by louis philippe that the proudest emotions swelled in his bosom but when he learned that he had prevented a war with england for he knew that england and america could not afford to fight that it would be a fight where gain is loss and glory is shame At last. Worn out with labor and disease, and perhaps embittered by disappointment, and saddened to see the increasing tendency to elevate little men to power—the grasshoppers who make the field ring with their importunate chinks, while the great cattle chew the cud and are silent. Webster died at Marshfield, October twenty-fourth, 1852, at seventy years of age. At the time he was Secretary of State. He died in the consolations of a religion in which he believed, surrounded with loving friends and even his enemies felt that a great man in Israel had fallen. Nothing then was said of his defects, for great defects he had—a towering intellectual pride like Chatham, an austerity like Gladstone, passions like those of Mirabeau, extravagance like that of Cicero, indifference to pecuniary obligations like Pitt and Fox and Sheridan. But these were overbalanced by the warmth of his affections for his faithful friends, simplicity of manners and taste— courteous treatment of opponents, dignity of character, kindness to the poor, hospitality, enjoyment of rural scenes and sports, profound religious instincts, devotion to what he deemed the welfare of his country, independence of opinions and boldness in asserting them at any hazard and against all opposition, and unbounded contempt of all lies and shams and tricks. These traits will make his memory dear to all who knew him and as Florence, too late, repented of her ingratitude to Dante, and appointed her most learned men to expound the divine comedy when he was dead, so will the writings of Webster be more and more a study among lawyers and statesmen. His fame will spread and grow wider and greater, like that of Bacon and Burke, and of other benefactors of mankind, and his ideas will not pass away until the glorious fabric of American institutions, whose foundations were laid by God-fearing people— shall be utterly destroyed and the capital where his noblest efforts were made shall become a mass of broken and prostrate columns beneath the debris of the nation's ruin no not then shall they perish even if such gloomy changes are possible any more than the genius of cicero has faded among the ruins of the eternal city but they shall shine upon the most distant works of man, since they are drawn from the wisdom of all preceding generations, and are based on those principles which underlie all possible civilizations. Authorities. The works of Daniel Webster, in eight octavo volumes, including his speeches, addresses, orations, and legal arguments. Life of Daniel Webster by G. T. Curtis. Private Correspondence, edited by F. Webster. Private Life by C. Landman C. W. March's Reminiscences of Congress Peter Harvey's Reminiscences and Anecdotes Edward Everett's Oration on the Unveiling of the Statue in Boston R. C. Winthrop and Everett's on the same occasion in New York Contemporaneous Lives of Clay, Calhoun, and Benton The Great Oration on Webster by Rufus Choate at Dartmouth College j barnard's life and character of daniel webster e p whipple's essay on webster eulogies on the death of webster especially those by g s hilliard l woods a taft r d hitchcock and theodore parker also addresses and orations on the one hundredth anniversary of webster's birth too numerous to mention especially the address of senator bayard at dartmouth college the complete and exhaustive life of webster is yet to be written although most prominent of his contemporaries have had something to say. End of section 11